Okay, great. Well, um, this week, um, following on from our conversation on Sunday around loneliness, um, I've been able to and privileged to be able to talk to Megan Good, who is a pastor out in Arizona. Um, she is a somebody that I've got to know through the Jesus Collective. She's on the theology circle of the Jesus Collective with me, um, someone with immense amount of wisdom. We were talking a, a couple of months ago about loneliness um, in a group together, and um, I just realized quite the depth of wisdom she has. So, Megan, great to be with you. Great to have you joining us today. Great so, to be in a distant conversation with your community. Yeah, so um, really good to have you with us. So why, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your context um, out there in Arizona? Other than just it's morning for you, it's evening for me, it's eight hours difference, makes this sort of stuff really difficult. But um, yeah, what's your context? Well, um, as you mentioned, I am a pastor in Arizona, Phoenix specifically. So this is one of the largest urban centers in the United States, um, millions of people here. So it's a it's an urban environment, but pretty, pretty spread out. Um, my congregation is a historic Anabaptist church. So we're really focused on Jesus centeredness. Um, and I would say a lot of people are drawn to this, this community, um, my congregation in part because there's such a strong community atmosphere. Like it's a, it's a community that really values living life together and um, integrated relationships. Um, so my, my role here, I'm the teaching pastor I do preaching, writing, curriculum development, and then also oversee the kind of missions programs right. for the church. And then kind of some in my of what, own life on the side, I do a lot of writing. Yeah, right. Which is some of which, some of the stuff I think that probably got you involved in the Jesus Collective. Um, and you've written a book um, already, um, which tells a little bit about that. What's it, what's it called and what, what's it about? Yeah, the book I already have out is called The Bible Unwrapped, Making Sense of Scripture Today. And it's a book that really looks at um, a lot of people I know struggle with the Bible and what to make of difficult passages in the Bible and, and what to do with the fact that Christians disagree about how to read it. So this book is, is kind of an introduction to interpreting the Bible through a Jesus-centered lens and also a conversation about how we, how we navigate our agreements and disagreements around what it means. Right. Uh, because I think that is such a such a valuable topic and such an important thing to to write about, and it's been pretty well received, I think, from quite a lot of quite a lot of people. And um, yeah. yeah, and I think it's 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 such an important topic. How do we understand the Bible um, together? There are some passages which either different people read differently, or we or we approach from different angles, or some of us just get to and go, I have no idea how to fit that into who I understand God to be or what I think God is like or um, so yeah, really good um, resource. And I think, you know, I've not, I've not read the whole book, but I've seen bits of it and just really accessible as well. Like you, you've not well, read. That was one of the goals. Of, I didn't want you to be bored. <laughs> yeah. So it's not, you've not written in kind of highbrow way. It's really accessible, very, um, and yeah, really good book to read. So um, thank you for writing that. And now you're writing another book. I um, am about loneliness right yes i this book kind of began to, in development while i was still writing the last one um but i i started feeling just a, a real kind of burden under the holy spirit in part because i was having so many pastoral conversations where i i began to feel at a certain point in my pastoral ministry like the the most common reason people were coming to my office was to express loneliness and 
and their confusion about about what to do with the sense of their sense of isolation, which was surprising to me, particularly because I'm a part of a community that values community and raised a lot of questions like what what is happening and why and and what do we do about it? Right. Because that's that must be quite a shock. Right. Because, you know, I think you like us, you're a church. We go look like belonging, belongings in the small belongings in the relationships. We do community. Well, we're part of our community. We serve our community. We do life together. It's OK to not be OK. It's OK to work this stuff out. You don't have to have everything sorted. We're we're learning and we're gravitating towards Jesus together. Like So then. Right. So it must be. A little bit like, so why are these people coming to me saying they're lonely? Like we've got all this stuff and we've got all these groups and we've got all this network and we've got all this support and we, it's okay to not be okay. We make space for this stuff. Like, so your response was, I need to do some writing about that. Or I need to do some research about that. Or I need to, what, what would you like? <laughs> I think a combination of both. And in part, because I had plenty of experience with this topic in my, in my own personal life. And I had questions myself about, you know, like, why do I end up being lonely, even when surrounded by community? Like, what are what are the dynamics that are unfolding in me and in others that result in this kind of, you know, it's a, it's a subjective experience, but it's a powerful experience that right. affects you mentally and physically and in all sorts of ways. And so I, I was kind of, I guess, on the trail for all of us to say, like, what can we learn about this that can help us maybe turn the tide for ourselves and for each other? And this was something you saw pre-COVID right like you started you'd notice this even before COVID had hit now like we know that COVID has only made this worse I think you know our statistics are 45% of people are lonely in the UK Um, I think you put statistics out there from a study in America that was like 22% um, are chronically lonely Um, so it was already an issue, right? These are studies like either from before COVID or early COVID. So um, like this is an issue that, that we've seen, um, yeah, grow, get worse, like intensify um, all around us because people can't have those connections or feel are more restricted in their connections. So um, a timely, timely piece of work in one sense, um, but at the same time, you're writing about, a landscape that's shifting um, quite dramatically. Like a lot of people maybe didn't feel they were lonely before suddenly kind of going, what's that feeling I've got inside me that I don't, why, why do I not feel so great? Why am I, why is this impacting me physically? Right. So um, how's that affected your writing? That being the experience of COVID specifically? Yeah. The COVID. Yeah. Like yeah. changing the, the dynamic, I guess, of the landscape. Well, it certainly, you know, I started this project over two years before COVID began. So I had already finished most of the research by the time we began having this collecting experience. Um, But it it is very interesting to see a a chronic problem suddenly amplified really Mm. acutely. And in some ways, I I think it was very positive in that the experience became so widespread abruptly that people were much more interested in talking openly about it. yeah. You know, it it already was widespread and, and there was a lot of concern even among governments about how high the numbers are getting and the severity of the health effects. But um, I, I think the experience of, of COVID and social distancing just really, really pushed to the surface these, these right. simmering questions about um, how we have ordered life and society and housing and mm-hmm. all sorts of things, both psychologically and practically. Um, in ways that just make the system tremendously vulnerable and make people very vulnerable in it. 
Yeah. And I think that's one of the fascinating things and from some of the stuff that you shared with me, some of the stuff that I've gone and then read and studied in this, in this country and some of our statistics over here. Um, and just the fact that, you know, the, the impact that the health impact and therefore the impact on, um, on our, on our health services over here or the impact on, on all sorts of services over here, but you know, the impact of loneliness is more severe than the impact of obesity in the UK. And um, yes. so, I mean, it, it's a serious physical, social issue um, because it's, it's it, you know, it's making people really ill, right? Well, and, it, and also in theological terms, I think it's a, it's a serious theological issue in that it invites Christians to ask the question again, like, is the image of God, can it be fully developed alone? <laughs> or are there crucial parts of this image that like our, our very physiology, our very bodies yeah. remind us that like we were meant to be an us and not just an individual. <laughs> right. Yeah. We have this line in that, in our values um, at Yoga Community Church that says the way of Jesus cannot be lived in isolation, which like gets right to the core of, gets right, right to the core of this. You're right. You know, if we live in a society that where so many people are lonely, um, what does that say about when when we believe that the way of Jesus can be has to be can only really be lived in um, in community and only be, really be lived with 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 one or two people with then a network of people with then a common purpose that is global amongst the church. Um, so so then in in your book, obviously you've you've talked about the statistics, you've talked about the data, you've talked about you know what's going on in our societies and i talked about some of that on sunday and um obviously that's going to be in there as well but then you move on to talk about so what can we if you're lonely if you're an individual that's lonely then what what can you do and i think that's a really i'd love to hear you talk about that for a little while because um you know, great, we've identified that more people are lonely <laughs> than ever before. We've identified that it's a really serious issue and it impacts our health and it can reduce our life expectancy by 15 years and it can uh, you know, have all these impacts. And and also it's it's not how we're supposed to be living out the way of Jesus, but actually if I'm lonely, I mean, that's all interesting, but what do I what do? I do? How, how do we, because one of the things about loneliness is, we get caught in these cycles where therefore we shrink, we pull back, therefore we're more lonely, therefore we shrink, we pull like we get stuck in these cycles that actually often increase our loneliness rather than tackle our loneliness. Right. Well, maybe we can talk about this in two pieces because I, I think there's um, some of the work that ha we have to do when we're lonely is internal work, right. um, you know, dealing with what what's occurring within ourselves. And some of it is external work of things we can actually do different in our behavior. Um, to make a difference. So let's start with just some of the internal things. Um, you know, one of the things we know about people who are struggling with loneliness is that um, when, when you are in a state of, of chronic loneliness, um, you actually read people's facial expressions and body language less accurately. Right. Um, the reason for that is that loneliness essentially triggers like a threat sensor in your brain and your body um, in, in which the world begins to feel more threatening and more hostile. Um, and therefore you're, you're prone to read more negativity off of other people. Um, now this creates real, real difficulties, even though this is all a thing that's kind of occurring in your head when you talk about um, trying to engage relationships. If, if your kind of default 
reading is tilted toward negativity, um, you, you can sort of bring that into relationships and import that onto people. Um, now, the answer to some of that is, is there's no like quick and easy answer, but a, a, a kind of awareness and a kind of humility to say like, assuming the worst of other people is, is usually not <laughs> the, the best way to go in, um, not only for practical reasons, but because it's not accurate. Um, in, in fact, that people who exhibit a higher level of trust and a more sympathetic reading of others tend to be more accurate in their readings of, and predictions of other people's actions. Um, so, so just understanding that part of that fear, that anxiety, um, primes you to expect less than what other people actually want to offer. Um, so therefore, in fact, they're... So therefore, oh, like sorry, telling ourselves that, uh, or recognizing within ourselves that even though our instinctive response might be, oh, I think, I think they're negative towards me. I think they're rejecting me. Maybe there isn't room for me or whatever it might yes. be. Just kind of having that little mantra that you tell yourself going, well, that's okay. Cause that, that's probably not true. That's probably right. my reaction. So how, but then how, how do I, how do I get the strength to kind of look again or or step towards in those situations? Um, well, I, I think like recognizing part of what you're bringing to the table is key. Another thing that I found super encouraging, I, I saw a number of studies where they actually surveyed people and asked just the general populace, like, how interested are you in having a conversation with a stranger today? Like, do you want to, do you want to talk to somebody? And it turns out like the vast majority of human beings desire interaction desire relationship would like be delighted to be talking to someone sitting on the bus or whatever um the issue that they have found in research is that just no one wants to be the person to initiate um now that has given me as a person who has some social anxiety like a a real new level of confidence to say like i can i can navigate the world like beginning from a default assumption that like most people would love to be talking to me right now like most people are looking for deep connections casual connections all kinds of connections during the day it's just that we're all afraid and our our mutual fear is the wall um, that is keeping us apart yeah. and and i think just like being able to re-narrate the world and the people are around me that way has made me much bolder and just being willing to to reach out to someone and say hey you seem interesting like would you like to have coffee I'd like to know you and it turns out in my experience almost everyone says yes um people want connection uh, you're not by yourself in that and um, just knowing that story I think helps mm. yeah that's really interesting yeah okay so there's that there's that internal narrative that we need to challenge um within ourselves and just tell ourselves that maybe our instinctive response isn't always the accurate response. Um, what, what are the other internal things that we can do? Um, well, another one is to look at our expectations. Um, another thing that we've learned from studies is that people who are chronically lonely tend to have higher expectations of relationships than people who are not lonely. Um, now, I think it's important to be really careful on that because there's there's nothing wrong with having expectations in relationships. Um, but I think where where this can backfire on us and become a bit distorted is, is particularly when we begin to look for like one perfect person, whether that's a romantic partner or even a, a single idealized friendship to like meet all of our emotional and social needs. Um, and what generally happens when we approach relationships from that posture is like we're continually disappointed. Like this person seemed great and then they, they didn't perform enough for what I needed or they didn't, they didn't match perfectly with, with all of the things that I was searching for in connection. 
And I think one of the gifts of Christian community, I think of it, it's a lot like um, saying every person is a puzzle piece and puzzle pieces are meant to be connected on multiple sides. Like there, there's no one piece that's going to connect and wrap all the way around and hit everything you need and everything you are. Um, yeah. that it, it's much more helpful to set our internal expectations in, with an understanding that all human needs are network needs <laughs> um, that, you know, it's going to take a lot of relationships of varying depth, varying complexity, different, you know, there, there's some people in my life that like, I never have a deep conversation with that I always know I can go to, to have a great time on a Friday night, <laughs> yeah. you know, like that person doesn't have to be the same person that, you know, holds all my secrets or like setting our expectations to allow for and embrace that kind of diversity of what people have to offer and, and how many relationships it may take to kind of fill the cup um, helps us from damaging relationships by placing the weight of an unsustainable amount of expectation on one person. Just putting too much weight on one relationship. So then we have this unattainable goal for them to be perfect. I really like that puzzle piece analogy because that it connects on all four sides like you say like we have we have different needs but we can't put all of that connection on one piece because it just won't hold that's a really helpful analogy i think well and i might highlight too that this is particularly relevant to people who are experiencing loneliness in marriage um because what often happens in marriages human beings are genetically born with different levels of social need and it's very rare for two married people to be perfectly aligned in what their level of social need is. So one person's social needs may be entirely met by this relationship and another person may be thinking like something is wrong with my marriage because all, all of my needs are not getting met here. Um, but what, when we understand that, like those, those levels are built into who we are and it's different for each person and, and we're made for network, um, then we can avoid even you know harming our marriages by expecting this one relationship to be all relationships. Yeah. Right. Right. So, yeah. So then what do we, yeah, again, that's really helpful. And I think, you know, a lot of people kind of think, oh yeah, well, if I have that one relationship, I have that, that spouse, that life partner. Um, of course they're going to, they're going to fulfill everything in me. That's what, a, that's what the perfect marriage looks like. That's what the perfect relationship looks like. But um, yeah, you're right. We're genetically different. We, you know, I'm an, I'm an introvert married to an extrovert. Like it's, it's different. <laughs> yep. I love going to parties with her. I hate going to parties on my own. Like, because, you know, she's doing, she does all that. She walks in, there's life in the room, like, hey, everyone, you know, and she's connecting with everyone. And can I just stand there in admiration going, I have no idea how she does that. And um, I'm always the guy kind of around the edge of the room having the deep conversation with one person and she's kind of connecting with everyone. And like, we have all these, but that, yeah. And I think that's a really helpful observation. You know, we are, we're different. We have different levels of need when it comes to this. Um yeah. So, yeah, so on, the, so on the internal aspect, it's about kind of understanding that our, our initial reading might not always be the accurate reading, but also managing our expectations and understanding all our expectations might not be met by one person. Um, so um, it, it, is there another significant aspect that we can do internally before we move on to the external stuff we can do? Yeah. Well, let me give you one more. Um... I don't, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the word like rumination, but rumination is the act where you take something in your head and you kind of turn it over and over and over. And um, it, it's like a thought in your brain gets stuck. Um, rumination is just generally a, a fairly harmful psychological phenomenon when we get stuck in it. Um, and that's particularly true on loneliness. 
um, that the more time that you spend ruminating on loneliness and kind of turning it over and over in your head and examining it from all angles, you, you think it's going to help you find a solution. But what tends to happen is the thought patterns just get stuck and, and it, rumination can actually entrench you deeper. Um, so if you're finding yourself in a space of life where like that, that pain and that thought of like, how do I solve this, like is becoming this all consuming thought that you feel like you've lost control of. Um, I think it's helpful to recognize that that process of it, it's important to think about something in a problem solving manner, but not to ruminate constantly. Well, what's, um, the, and, what's the action that helps us pull out of that rumination? Because saying, oh, this isn't good, but like I'm someone who doesn't really know how to turn my brain off very well. So I, my brain just kind of goes and goes and goes. And I don't necessarily get stuck on one thing. My mind flies all over the place, but um it, you know, it's one thing to say to one, oh, that, that ruminating thing you're doing, that's not great. Like, you shouldn't do that. And I might go, no, you're right. I shouldn't do that. That's going to make stuff worse. But I might not know how to stop doing that. So is is it helpful to kind of go, if I'm going to think about this, I should talk to someone else about it. That might pull to give a different perspective. Or should I, what, what, do you have ideas on what, what are the things we do to help us stop ruminating? I have a few ideas. Um, there's no, I think one answer for everyone, but I think like, if you're going to think about something like set aside a particular time, I, I think it is really helpful to do it with somebody else. But even if you're not like, this is my time to think about this as a problem, to analyze it as a problem and to ask myself concretely, what actions should I be taking that yeah. might make a difference? Like I'm going to spend 30 minutes deliberately thinking toward right. action. Right. Um, that I, I think for most of us actually, um, especially when we're really deep in that rumination cycle beginning to disrupt it in part like requires um even redirecting energy toward i, I think putting physical activity like anything you're doing with your body that like grounds you back in your body and and requires you to to think about something else for a period of time actually kind of snags that that thought rut in its tracks yeah. it's i know it's not easy I've been in it, <laughs> but it, there is a way out. And it, it begins, I think, with finding some productive activities that require attention and just don't let you fold inward on yourself. Yeah. Um, do it even if you don't feel like doing it. <laughs> right. And again, if you, if you can have someone, again, this is part, part of the way that we share life. If you have that, if you have those two or three people who like know you, or if you have that small group where you can go, guys, like I need some help with this sometimes. So they go, okay, well then that's, why not every week we'll go for a walk or we'll go for a bike ride or we'll do, you know, whatever it might be, go for a game of golf, whatever it could be. But um, like, what are the, like, so, so you're, there's that network of friends can help you break that cycle as well. Well, and I think you just um, said, did something important even in your description that you may not have been aware of, but you, you said every week. Um, and I, I think one of the keys to this is actually scheduling it with regularity, um, right. because if you're if you're lonely, if you're socially anxious, or even if you're just introverted, I'm like sometimes the biggest obstacle is getting the thing on the calendar. And there's something that is really freedom giving and releasing when you just make a commitment, and all you have to do is show up, and you no longer have to decide. Like I don't have to decide tonight. Do I feel up to this social interaction? I already decided. It's what I do on Thursdays, and right. whether no matter how I'm feeling, I just show up. And right. I think that can be a real gift when when it's hard to find that emotional energy to like make a decision continually. Yeah, and routine is a you know is a valuable is a really valuable tool for us, isn't it? And 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 all the more as we as we've just gone through a year of lockdown, COVID, which is 
which has decimated our routines, then finding that rhythm, finding that routine again, setting a pattern in your diaries that we, so you have those interactions, so you have those walks, so you have those whatever it might be, um, is just good for our mental health. Whether you're a ruminator or not, it's just good for our mental health. Yeah, so we should be, yeah, if we're able to do that, we should be doing that. And so then, but you, so you talked about the internal, like, narratives, disciplines, challenges, whatever that we can go through. But then what's the, but you also talked about external um, actions that we can take if, if we're lonely. Yeah. So uh, the first and I think most important thing, and this is sometimes the hardest part for lonely people to wrap their heads around, but one of the biggest kind of emotional disruptors of loneliness is actually altruism or doing something to meet the need of somebody else. Okay. Um, and, and when you're feeling lonely, like there, it, it's sort of like the black hole of emotions, like, and, and, you know, this isn't your fault. Like this is how human brains and physiology are designed. It's like being hungry. Like your body is signaling, screaming constantly. There's a need, feed me. Um, but the, the kind of contradictory aspect of loneliness as a feeling is, is that in some ways, the only way to get fed is to feed others. Wow. Um, and okay. and we, we tend to get most stuck by sort of sitting around like waiting for someone to fill the hole. And in fact, what, what really disrupts the emotional cycle is asking like, where is a need in somebody else's that I can fill, even if I can't fill my own. Um, and that, that's not just a good thing to do. It actually, it, it does change your emotional and mental experience that's really interesting because we um when we talk about giving um we talk about um giving as the antidote to not enough so when we get into this sort of psycho psychology which is very strong in our society of you know we all want 20 percent more we're all 25 percent away from having enough like so um so we live in this culture of not enough then we say well actually when you get that, like, oh, I haven't got enough, uh, you know, things are a little bit tight, or I don't know if I can afford because I've only got that savings account there, I've only got that bit of money there, or whatever it might be, we we say, well, no, like, um, giving is the antidote. Like, this is this is the way God has wired us. Actually, if you feel like you haven't got enough, giving is the antidote to that, and that's modeled in how Jesus, how, how God spoke to the Israelites when they came out of this dominant culture of not enough of slavery in egypt um and said so you need to give and you need to give you need to give your tithe make it a habit make it an instinct make it a, make it this perspective this um this antidote but it's really interesting to hear you talk about that same principle but in how we deal with hunger how we deal with loneliness how we deal with a lot of our wherever we feel we're in poverty whether and loneliness is a relational poverty right so um so wherever we feel like we're in poverty um giving is the antidote um to poverty yes right and that's really one thing we want to the one thing we want to avoid just as a caution like you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you know some people try and tackle a problem by throwing themselves head first in and where like the goal isn't busyness right it's not it's not to be frantic day and night (laughs) Um, but but it is to show up for other people in a in a consistent way and be putting something out um so in that schedule that we're trying to put together can I volunteer? Right. Um, so, can it, so it's not just about, oh, I'll see this friend and they can listen to my problems and then I'll see this friend and then they can, we can, we can do this thing together, whatever. Can I go, well, actually, is it within my schedule? Can I put some volunteering in where I, where I show up for someone else, where I'm a mentor for a family or I help at the food bank or I, whatever it might be. 
um, put chairs out on a Sunday, whatever it might be, but can I show up and give something of myself? Um, Yeah, I really like that. Well, a second maybe tip that I think is an extension of that one. Um, I, I like to refer to this this one, I think of it with the metaphor, find a battle. Um, that w- one of the things we know about people is um, people psychologically actually, and pandemics are the exception to this, I should note, um, but times of like great disaster, um, whether that's natural disaster or, or war or you know violent conflict, um, in many cases, the overall psychological health of societies tends to improve during that time. And the reason for that, the mechanism for that is that um, having a kind of common cause or a a common even form of suffering to respond to um, tends to bring people together in a more profound level of connection um, than, you know, watching Netflix with your friend or whatever, like people feel integrated and, and that's a tremendous gift. Now, I don't think we, we want to just like wait for horror to happen <laughs> before we reap the benefits of social connection. Um, but what we can actually do more deliberately is say like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of big work in the world that needs to be done. There are a lot of, there are a lot of forms of evil that need to be dealt with. Um, so particularly as Christians, what, what would it look like for us proactively to like choose our battles in the name of the kingdom of God and invite other people to come alongside us in that struggle and to sacrifice together and, um, to, to put our sweat and blood into this, this labor together. And so many people find, um, you know, the, the relationships that, you know, that you might have a relationship in church, you might be in the same small group with someone for 10 years and never really know them and never really feel close. And then, and then you go on, you know, a week long backpacking trip or whatever, and you, you sweat and you bleed and, and suddenly you're bonded in a new way. And um, I think that invitation to, to invite each other toward um, intentional action, um, specifically for the kingdom of God, um, really has the power to change shallow relationships into something much deeper and more profound in a fairly short period of time. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. So um, we've talked about what we can do if we're lonely. I mean, is there, is there another thing you want to say about the external? or Because uh, what you've kind of tipped into there is the, and also what can we do as the church? Like, sure. because this is a this is a social phenomenon like we have you know there's a large percentage of our communities that are lonely there's and and yeah we've addressed okay those of us who are in the church are lonely which we know there are um you know statistically there's going to be a, a not dissimilar percentage what can we do um, and that's really helpful but what can we do collectively as a church um to help people to connect with people to serve people to bless people in our community who are suffering from loneliness yeah well i think my encouragement to the church on this would be to think big rather than small <laughs> um the, the the kind of things there are small things that we can do um but the kind of things that are really going to be truly revolutionary and disruptive to a culture of widespread loneliness in the west require us to think really broadly and systematically even about the whole arrangement of our lifestyles and, and how we got in the position we're in. Um, so let me give a couple of examples. Um, the, the way that we think about housing in a lot of Western country, countries, there, there have been a lot of links demonstrated to, 
um, that the, the way we design our houses, the way we structure, you know, the distance between our work and our home, our church and our home, um, the result is houses have become more and more like castles, where everyone is kind of shut up in their own private space, um, nobody interferes with each other's space, and, um, you know, you can see how we got there, because human beings like we, we like owning things. We like having control of a space. Um, but what if it turns out that our way of thinking of housing and like every individual in their own apartment and every nuclear family in their own house um, commuting to church once a week, um, what if that turns out to be not at all conducive to human flourishing? Like what would it look like for the, the church to think differently about um, very, very, in very practical ways about how we order our space, where we live, um, who we live with, um, I will give one example, just speaking from myself here. I had my own apartment um, when this pandemic started. Um, it wasn't like my ideal living situation, but that's kind of how we do things in the West. And um, it turned out that the level of isolation that was involved in COVID and not seeing colleagues at work and not seeing friends, like that became a really unsustainable, unhealthy living situation for me. Um, and I got an invitation from an 86-year-old woman who has some health problems to move into her large house in a different part of the city and, um, you know, help her with just small daily tasks and that kind of thing. Um, but it ended up being, you know, we we're able to, to sh share rent. So it changed the financial situation. But much more importantly, like for both of us, it just was a tremendously positive social experience during COVID to be, to be living together and... Um, leaving room for each other's different phases of life and different lifestyles, but also being under one roof and having meals together occasionally. And, um, you know, I think, I think we've been very uncreative culturally and the church has not been any more creative than the culture in thinking about um, things don't have to be the way they are. Like we haven't always done housing the way we do it now. And um, if we were open to thinking creatively and taking more risks on each other, um, I think there could be a lot more joy and a lot more connection for a lot of us. Yeah. So big, like thinking systemic, um, not just, not just, oh, we should do this project or we should have this initiative and then maybe we'll come on to that, but actually thinking what are the systems that we're part of um, that we buy into, that we participate in that are, that are not conducive or that are, that are perpetuating the loneliness that's in our community or, um, or creating more loneliness in our community. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, another thing I think we, we can and should have a widespread conversation about in the church is how we think and talk about leisure. Um, it turns out that there's a, there's a range of ways we can spend our leisure. Um, and some of those things are more life-giving than other things. Okay. <laughs> and they're often not the ones that we're choosing by default. And, um, you know, it, it's funny because I, I feel like I've, I've been in the church a long time and we have a lot of conversations about Christian faith and work and like how, and Christian faith and family. But I, I've heard very few conversations about our relationship to leisure as as people of Jesus. And um, what would it look like for us to to think about patterns of leisure and, and the ways that we spend our time that that are deliberately structured toward relationship rather than toward isolation okay um, so can you talk I, about i can't tell bit? you how um, i'm you, sorry yeah can you talk that out a little bit because um um because obviously for us leisure leisure for you leisure for us but it's um it's like 
so you're talking about what we do with our social time, what we do with our free time. What, what are we, what are we spending? Are we watching TV? Are we reading books? Are we hanging out with friends? Are we, but what, um, what are the helpful questions that we should be asking ourselves in that? What sort of examples do you have of how we could be doing that better? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think, I don't think it will be a shock to anyone what I would say part of our problem is. <laughs> um, but, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of evidence, like, over the last 40 years, like, an increasing amount of our time is being devoted to television viewing in all its forms. Um, and, and what's even interesting within that is that it's not just the viewing of television, but with laptops and Netflix and everything, like even, even television viewing used to be more communal and has become more and more individual, like every family member in their own room with their iPad or whatever they're viewing on. Right. Um, and, and I really think like how we grapple with our, our viewing of, of television is a serious spiritual question. Um, and it's, it's one of those many questions that it's not about is TV good or evil, but it's, it's about like all of my time is God's and, and all of my time is formational. And like, is this, is this giving God and the kingdom of God and also me like the, the kind of richness of human experience that God has designed for me? Um, we know specifically in relation to loneliness that a lot of people when they're lonely watch TV in part because even connecting with television characters gives people the illusion of connection, even though, even though the person involved is fictional. And, you know, I've experienced that too, but I, I think that's something we want to watch in ourselves. And um, because we feel invested in a character or we feel in like, so we feel like, or maybe we, we can process our own issues through seeing how, or we can distract ourselves from our own issues, or we can process, we like kind of live vicariously maybe through some of our, um, characters that we watch on tv absolutely and and why do we do it i think part of it i talked to a lot of people about this where they come over from work and they would love to see their friends and have a conversation but but people say like i don't want to have to clean my bathroom or i don't have the energy to like cook a meal and have people over for a meal so we have all these kind of social expectations that get get layered between our ability to make connections by making it just like practically feel impossible to cross the barrier and I, I think we can deal with that communally by by actually releasing some of those expectations and having conversations t- together to say to each other, like, I want I want you to be able to drop over on like Monday or Tuesday nights, the door is open and like I can't promise you the toilet will be scrubbed. And I can't I can't promise you that there will be any food outside of the pretzel jar. <laughs> but like I want us to be able to like sit and just like yeah. speak or not speak, do or not do. Um and and yeah, like creating creating a communal culture that makes that feel viable rather than having to yeah. perform our right. perform our yeah, home life for each other. So years ago, now I was youth leader, and when I was youth leader, we always used to say, "Look, there, there are certain like young people or people in the church, whatever." We'd say, "Just come over whenever," and look, like rock up rock up any time. There was a couple we even gave keys to and just went, "Just show up," and if you want to walk in, walk in, and like, and you might get a cup of tea put in your hand. You might get a cloth put in your hand. And you can help us clean the kitchen, or you can help us tidy. Or you, you might get a paintbrush put in your hand if we're decorating, a, you know, a room or whatever. But just come and share life. And for a lot of young people, that was really valuable. But it's interesting that probably at our stage of life now, and our kids are different ages, a lot of them moved on, whatever. Like we, you know, as you're as you're saying that, I'm kind of reflecting, going, we don't do that as much. 
now it's like it's a bit more of an ordered social life it's a bit more of like and um there's some real value to um and actually there's a vulnerability that maybe leads to a vulnerability in other areas of just going well come and find us however we are like just rock up if you need to knock on the door walk in like just rock up and knock on the door like and there's a vulnerability in that that might also lead to a deeper vulnerability in our um emotional relationships absolutely absolutely and you know there's a this doesn't have to be always in extremes. Like you, you don't have to like offer yourself as available all the time, but you know, in, in our community, there's one group, for example, that Monday nights, um, they just take turns saying like somebody's home is open and you can come or not come. Right. Like it's not, it's not a thing that has to be scheduled, but like you show, you can show up in the evening and there will be people and there will be something to snack on. And um, you know, you can, you can make your patterns known and, and begin to build in, what you're doing is building a new rhythm of life, right? Yeah. That is is structured for people um, rather than for other things. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so so then how we yeah, so how we create, how we manage our social time, how we think about the big issues in our society, and and you know, so as a church, we can think um, systemically, not just project wise. Um, and obviously there are projects that we can get and we do get involved in as well in some of these areas um, around loneliness and connection and um, you know families etc we, we do some of that stuff but it's interesting to you talk about well yeah but think systemically um, I like that think socially and and what are the what are the habits that we that we have how how open are we to those sorts of things um, yeah is that would you say those are the two main things or is there something else you want to challenge us as a church to um to think about to step into well i think maybe one more thing i would say this is a a challenge particularly to teachers but it's it's relevant to everyone i I think we need to really be talking differently in the church about family um and that some of jesus's most radical and controversial teachings in the first century jewish world were around the ways that he talked about family and and some of the things he said about it and um, Jesus had a very kind of revolutionary view of what it meant to be a Christian community that is is being reconstituted into a new family by the shared blood and DNA of Jesus um, into something different than what we're just born into. Um, now, I think what's really ironic historically is that in, in more recent centuries, in some ways, Christians have been the, the guardians of of biological family as as a unit of good and not to take anything away from that you know our biological families have tremendous shaping power and are important um but i i think we have really underestimated the radicality of jesus's vision of what what core christian units are to be and what we're meant to be to each other and that rediscovering this vision of of family constituted in a different way is going to be really key to even presenting the gospel in a viable way in a in a situation where more and more people are are not in Mm. traditionally constituted um, family situations and are are really yearning for all of the things those connections involve commitment to showing up um, security um, financial support uh, child rearing support intergenerational wisdom and connection like all of those things we associate with family um i think the church has an opportunity to speak to and honestly if the church doesn't i don't know who will like i I really think this is our opening like if 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 we don't speak to this nobody is in a position to to speak to it 
Wow. That's a great challenge. And maybe we can talk about that again a little time in the future. Um, but yeah, I love that. Megan, that has been um, really valuable, um, really helpful. Um, I, I guess one last question before we um, end this conversation. Um, we have seen over here um, COVID have a disproportionate impact on young people, on teenagers, and um, particularly on their mental health, but on their um, on their on their well being, on their on in in all sorts of ways. Um, and we've talked about how we as a church can help um, think think about what we can do as a church for our community. We've talked about what we can do. Um, for as us as individuals who are feeling lonely and on what can we do um do you have any do you have any specific thoughts um i mean maybe about why it's, it's impacted that age group so much but but more about um other things that we can change um in the church about a how we serve our community or about how we just operate differently um to to counteract some of that um, suffering that they're going through, some of the challenges they're going through. Yeah. You know, I'm not exactly sure about the, the COVID effect on young adults, but what I can say from having seen the numbers prior to COVID, um, loneliness numbers have been high among young adults for a while, and nobody is exactly sure why. Um, like, we, we know loneliness spikes in, in older age, um, and we, we have plenty of ideas of what the mechanisms of that are. Um, but, but the second highest rates are among teens and young adults. Um, there's a lot of, I think, talk that is probably worth something that part of this is the impact of technology on young adults. Um, that a lot of us, I mean, even, you know, my age who grew up with a lot of tech, like think we're getting more out of technological relationships than we're actually getting. Um, it, it turns out like bodies need bodies and you can, you can gain positive social connections through technology, but it, it's not the same. Your body doesn't receive it in the same way as, as physical connection. Um, and it, it's not just that more of um, for teens and young adults, that more connection is happening in digital ways, but um, it's happening such that young adults are reporting feeling increasingly uncomfortable and not knowing how to navigate in-person interactions. You know, so so the getting used to technology essentially is creating more social anxiety in interpersonal relationships um, that makes it harder to connect outside technology. Um, and, you know, there are other things we could even say about the ways we, we perform and manufacture who we are in technology and we lose control. We become vulnerable when when we're in person and we're live. Um, all of those are really significant challenges that young adults are navigating that are the result of major technological shifts and, and cultural shifts that they didn't control, you know, and that generations before them didn't have a lot answers for them on, you know, like it just kind of happened. Um, I don't know what the perfect answer is, um, but I, I think we need to be a part of conversations with, with young adults about that experience and, and what they're what they're finding and what they're seeking and where that hunger and yearning is. Yeah. Um, I mean, I and, wonder, and recognizing. So I, I, I wonder whether um, cross-generational um, is something um, 
cross-generational relationships Now you were talking before about the, the, the how jesus um talks about families but also what some of the things we get from families and that that cross-generational wisdom that cross-generational connection stories being told passed on um down through generations and maybe maybe that's something the church can um has opportunities to be part of that haven't um that that maybe um some of our young people have less opportunity to experience in in, in their own settings and i think as well again looking at the yeah the systemic question that you raised um about we have to think systemically about yeah. loneliness but also and it seems to me that this generation are growing up in a world that they're that's they're, they're more keenly aware of the challenges we face globally um environmentally financially all, all the different global challenges that we face health-wise etc um and so how do we um how do we give them space to voice that and to stand with them to work with them to um to challenge it because they're the ones most keenly affected about that i guess so maybe, maybe some of the solutions are in that too well, and I think you could you could tie that back to what I said earlier about finding a battle. Like maybe part of it is is inviting inviting teenagers into meaningful work, faith based work that matters is is a a bridge to a relationship that you know if even if they might not sit across the table and like look you in the eye and spill their secrets, like that's a hard thing to do. Um, but you know, struggling side by side with someone for something that matters, um, you know, opens a lot of doors for for connection and for sharing that might not be available otherwise. Yeah. Um, one other tip I would give, um, one of the most interesting studies I've seen was that people who talk to somebody else with a cell phone on the table feel significantly less connected, even if they're not interrupted by the phone. Um, because part of what bringing our f- a phone into conversations, it introduces this, there might be something more important that comes mm-hmm. than you. Um, that kind of message. So when when you're spending time with teens and young adults, I think one of the things we can do for them is like put the phone away, like put it on silent, stick it in your bag and give your full attention. Um, Because attention is a powerful tool for all people, but particularly for teens and young adults to know that they're, they're being fully attended to and um, in a non interruptible, nothing better going on than you fashioned. Wow. That's really interesting. And um, just anecdotally, I, uh, chair of donors at a school in our town as well and we took a policy decision a couple of years ago now to ban all mobile phones um in in classrooms but on site so they could have them in the bags but no like they couldn't have them out of the bags at all um but it was the same for everybody on site so all the teachers all the all the all the staff any visitors to site no one was allowed to have a mobile phone on site um that that they were that they used and the impact that we saw yes behaviorally yes attention wise but also in social skills that develop between the young people their their ability to socialize the ability ability to have conversations the ability to listen to each other their ability to concentrate for longer spans all those sorts of things were significantly impacted by it um so maybe that relates to some of what you're saying too absolutely Hmm. Really interesting. Megan, thank you so much. You've been really generous with your time, really generous with your wisdom um, and your um, experience in this area. Um, just really want to thank you. Um, really enjoying connecting um, with you through Jesus Collective and getting to know your work a little bit more. Um, do let us know when your book comes out. Uh, I think there's going to be quite a few people interested in it over this side as well. But, um, but yeah, thank you so much. 
I really appreciate your time. 